We've got a lot to cover there. I hear me now. Uh, boy, do I ever. Uh, let me start in prayer. We need it. I need it. Uh, Father God, thank you for uh, this time, this morning. Lord, thank you for this day to remember the miracle of our independence, Lord, and what this country has meant for the last two and a half centuries. And uh, we ask you to continue to bless us, Lord. We thank you for your word that you've given us, Lord, and, and we seem to be making our way toward the end of this fabulous book. We, we thank you that the Holy Spirit led Paul to write it, and we thank you that there's so much in it for us. We praise your holy name in Jesus Christ today. Amen. All right. Uh, I did not finish the section on the day of the Lord last week, so I've got a little bit uh, to go back and catch up with, and uh, then we'll try to see how far we get toward the uh, end of the chapter and the end of the book. So I I made it, uh, we were about to discuss verses 4 and 5, and I think it will help us to keep the context here. I'm going to start in verse 2 of chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians. And I'll read through verse 5, starting with verse 2. It says, For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. When we get to verse 4, the word but there is kind of important. And uh, it's really a word of contrast. And the contrast here is what our lives would be like without Christ versus what our lives are like with Christ. Okay, for without Christ, we see what what would lay ahead, destruction and the fury of God's wrath and judgment. That's what the day of the Lord is. And we went through those scriptures last week to, to see that aspect of the day of the Lord. But these verses are telling us as believers that we don't have to face that. Did you notice, I tried to slow down and emphasize, did you notice the change in the pronouns as we started? In verse 3, it was they and them. And by the time we got to verses 4 and 5, we're looking at you, and then Paul includes himself in the group he's, he's speaking to as we. Paul includes himself, so you and we, in verses 4 and 5. Now, the day of the Lord is going to be a time, it begins in wrath, and it's on the unsaved world. But what what does it mean to believers? Well, the answer is that we're not in danger. And the reason is that we're not in darkness. Think about uh, this for a minute. Verse 2, where I started, it says, This day will come as a thief in the night. And then as we read through, we see that the only way it will overtake anyone is as a thief. 
That's, that's in verse 4. And the only persons that will overtake are those who are, from verse 2 again, in the night, meaning unbelievers. And verse 5 clearly states that we, believers, are not of the night. Okay? Believers are not meant to be overtaken at all. Because when the thief comes to this world's night, the sons of light, believers, will already be dwelling in light with the light of the world, as, as Jesus called himself in John 8.12, because we're sons of light. Does everybody follow this from where I'm with this? Okay, then let's go to verses 6 and 7. It says, So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. So these verses are telling us not to sleep. Now, this is not the same use of sleep as we saw at the end of chapter 4 when we were talking about the rapture. I am really loud. <clears throat> but it is, it is, it's not referring to death, in other words, of a believer. But it is, it's, it is comparing natural sleep to something else. And uh, what it's talking about is comparing it to moral or spiritual sleep. Moral or spiritual sleep. Spirit, what is spiritual sleep? Well, it is the it's selfish and the careless indifference that is going to characterize or that does characterize sons of darkness, sons of night. Indeed, verse 7, as I read, draws attention to the fact that it is at night when these people are sleeping. That is, when they're not discerning. And it's at night when they're drunken. And they're drunken with whatever distraction it is that the world, of the world that intoxicates them. So that they are indeed defenseless and vulnerable to being overtaken. Overtaken in judgment and God's wrath. Okay, that's all the doctrinal stuff. Let's, let's get a little more application. Let's read verse 8 now. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, sober, excuse me, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet the hope of salvation. So we see in verse 6 and verse 8, Paul is starting to give us some direct application for what all of these verses are, are telling us. And so he's given us some practical purpose now for what the Thessalonians have received by way of doctrine. And the two things that I see by way of application are to be alert and to be sober. To be alert. I wrote down six things that would have to do with being alert. Uh, number one would be to be ready. To be ready. And not to be caught sleeping. Number two, not to be caught sleeping. We should not allow the worries and the business of the world to choke out our passion for Christ. We should make our decisions, number four, based upon God's truth. Five, we should, and this is important, we should examine the culture around us with discernment. Because six, the caution is against us growing complacent in our Christian life. So that's being alert. Anything else you guys would add? 
How about being sober? To be sober, I get we are to be serious-minded and uh, redeeming the time, not wasting the time because it's short. And we must think deeper. And our convictions should be formed by God's Word. And I believe that if we are sober, then we're prepared. And this, this kind of preparation is what requires us to be putting on this spiritual armor that Paul talked about. You know, without going into the details of the pieces that are mentioned, I think that in general, Paul is saying that as sons of light, we should be life. And then he points up these three cardinal uh, elements of Christian character, uh, which keeps us, preserves us from the corruption of the world. And those are, uh, and they were likened to armor, and that's faith, love, and hope. And he gave them, <clears throat> gave them in that order. Okay. Any, any comment? Let's move on. First uh, Thessalonians, we're now to verses. I'm going to go from 9 through 11. Verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are doing. Did you notice uh, how well this verse uh, 9 ties in back in the first chapter of Thessalonians? First Thessalonians, verse 10. Let me turn over there for a second and read you. Read to you. I'm going to pick it up in 9. This is uh, the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians, and it says, For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a, a living and true God. Now listen. And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. So we see being rescued from the wrath to come, and we see that we are not appointed uh, to wrath, but to salvation. I think this verse, we can see it's true in, in at least two ways. And I would say in the broadest sense, the wrath to come is eternal judgment. You know, punishment uh, in the lake of fire, we're saved from that. God has saved us from that because we've trusted in him as our Savior in the broad sense, but in the contextual sense, we've just been looking at the day of the Lord, I think, which is a day of wrath. I think that we are indeed saved from that as well by the salvation we receive when the Lord comes to get us. I looked up some other uh, Bible translations, and this, uh, the phrase, God has not destined us to wrath, I found it also written... Uh, or translated, uh, did not appoint us to wrath, did not choose us to suffer, or has not predetermined us to wrath. So I think that verse 9 is pretty clear that the believer doesn't enter into the wrath that is the day of the Lord. That's great news, okay? And then verse 10, 
if you see that, gives us the reason why. Because God is able to keep us from this wrath and judgment, and that is because he died for us. Yes. That's very good. So that's, that's just a broad application. And you're, you're so right. Yes, he's in one sense, he's writing just to the Thessalonians, and yes, just to the believers. But when we get to the end of this chapter, he's going to uh, urge that this letter be passed around. So he's fully aware that this is going to be, he's, he's aware that this is Scripture, and it's going to be read by anyone. And you're so right, because there, therein is the comfort that an unbeliever can come to when they read this passage. Very right, very good. Hey, yeah. I agree. And I think there's both broad and contextual application there as well. Those who are not rescued, if it's referring to the day of the Lord, will be there to experience that horrible time of of His wrath and judgment. And then in the broader sense, for eternity, if if we choose to reject God, we have that eternal punishment. Uh, Also, in the phrase, what verse was that? Nine. Oh, verse 10. There's a phrase, whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. And I believe that can be interpreted in either of two ways also. So we have awakened to sleep again. It's a little little confusing because it uses sleep in one way in chapter 4, and he he uses it a a little differently in chapter 5 some of the time. So... uh, Awake or asleep, it could be referring to living or dead believers who will all go in the time of the rapture, uh, as we saw in chapter 4. Now, it could also refer to Christians who are watchful versus those who are you know, worldly or more carnal and not, wa- not discerning. It doesn't matter that you're going to go, yes. Yes. But Christians cannot <clears throat> add to their salvation. No. And if they are saved, they are going to be in heaven. But it never does, it never says anything, anything, without uh, a deliberate point. It doesn't waste words. So, so the Christian is being admonished to be prepared. There has to be 
around, especially in an age like today, and see a vast majority of people who are sleep beings. Yes. Well, there's, you know, we're going to see in, toward the end of this chapter, he has a name for those Christians. I mean, yes, he, he made the distinction, but the rapture. they don't miss the rapture. No. If you're saved, you're going to the rapture. Right. So is it your reward? Well, this is my next, you know, point right here is exactly what you've hit on. It, it, the reason I said that, awake or asleep, we're going to be with him. It's this. We know this, and you've already said it. Our eternal salvation does not depend upon our spiritual keenness, okay? And uh, our spiritual condition, it may determine, you know, what, get, what uh, rewards we might receive. But our salvation depends, listen, on one thing, faith in Christ alone. That's it. And there's nothing we can add to or take away from it. Whether our behavior is up, up to snuff, or if, you know, whether we're doing those things to be sober and to be alert, you know, it determines how we live our life now, and it determines the joy that we have in the Lord now. Because there was a group of the Thessalonians that they had decided, oh, well, the Lord's coming soon. I'm not even going to work anymore. I'm just going to kind of hang out and, you know, meditate a little bit, and uh, you know, hopefully somebody will feed me or this and that, and, and they're going to be reprimanded uh, a, a little bit here, but much more in the second uh, epistle of Thessalonians. So it's all about, you know, our walk and what we get out of it. And you miss so much by not, you know, being alert and sober in these times. Yes. Yeah, you know, the funny thing about this is the people we're alluding to right now, they're, no, they're not in this room. They wouldn't be in this room. <laughs> and yes, we go home and we beat ourselves because, oh, I didn't do this or I'm falling short. You know, to even care about these things shows that you are conscious of being alert and sober, you know, and it means something. Yes. It has to be important, and Paul certainly thinks it is. There's also the parable of the working in the field. Some of them are in the field the entire day. Some of them are at their lunchtime, and they all receive. Okay, and Stuart's talking about the parable of the workers. You know, the, 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 the boss hires them in the morning. They get their, 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 uh, going to get X amount, and if they come in in the last hour, they get X the same amount, and that is his choice. And you're right, and that's kind of like, you know, it's the comparison for our salvation. You know, when you, when you trust the Lord, you don't get it in bits and increments. You know, you don't ultimately become some super saint. You get it all at once. You get everything. Now, what you do with it, 
we're going to talk about in a minute of when we come to quenching the Spirit is up to you, but it's all available to us. All right? Now, let's go ahead, then we're going to go to, this is the last passage, the last uh, section of Thessalonians 5, and it's verses 12 to 28. Uh, you could call this uh, Christian attitude and behavior or Christian testimony towards other Christians and to God, and then there's going to be uh, some application. Now, at the very beginning when I started teaching this letter, we talked about there was going to be a lot of doctrine, and we've seen a lot of doctrine. And there's going to be a lot of practical. And I think that Paul spends at least as much time on the practical, and he really puts it together here in this last section. So although they've covered a lot of doctrinal ground and looked at a lot of major topics, uh, he is basically saying, what is the application of all this information? And, you know, J. Vernon McGee, uh, he would probably say, how should they put on their Christian, put their Christianity into shoe leather? And that's what, it, that's what we're going to look at here in the last, uh, the last section of chapter 5. Now, the last section itself, uh, I've divided into three, three parts that I can see. And, uh, and these are things that we can then incorporate into our Christian walk. Number one, we're going to look at the attitude toward Christian leaders and teachers. Number two, we're going to look at the attitude uh, toward Christian brothers and sisters, our Christian siblings. And then number three, we'll look at our attitude, our testimony toward God. All right? So let's pick up in verses 12 and 13. But we request you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live at peace with one another. So this Thessalonian church uh, presented a kind of an unusual situation. They'd only been established for a few months. All right? Everybody in the church was a new convert, a new believer. And some had probably been saved at the same time, maybe the same day or week. Yet God, through the Holy Spirit has taken this church and called out a few of the members to be leaders. So these new spiritual leaders, they've had no formal training to qualify them. What they had was what Paul and the Holy Spirit had taught them. It was God who put his hand on these designated men to be teachers, to be leaders and overseers of the flock of Thessalonica. And Paul is saying here to give them recognition give them recognition, give them respect, and give them response to these who have been given the gift of leadership. Now, some of the Thessalonians might have thought, you know, who's this guy uh, to take a place of leadership? Who is he? But Paul's telling them that they need to recognize people according to their ministry, not for who they are or for what they are, but for what they're doing, and that is as ministers chosen of the Lord. Scripture is pretty clear that God isn't a uh, respecter of persons and that he doesn't show partiality. To save time, I went ahead and just put together uh, just a few to, to show the point here. Uh, these are scriptures that tell us God does not show partiality. 
Acts chapter 10, uh, 34 and 35. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in him, excuse me, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. James chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there is also, also comes a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who's wearing fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Galatians 3, verses 28, excuse me, 27 and 28. For all of you were baptized into Christ. All of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed, your, clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus. And then finally, Romans 10. Romans 10, verses 11 through 13. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So we see that he's not a respecter of persons. And that's not regarding Jew or Gentile, man or woman, rich or poor, leader or flock. We are all on the same level with God. Paul doesn't say that they need to accept these leaders because they're such nice-looking people or because of their great oratory skills or their advanced education. He says that it's because of their work. That is, how they're being used by God. And to recognize such a person is to recognize God and his sovereign choice. And then he goes into the next verse, and be at peace with one another. There's a direct connection uh, and relationship between respecting a spiritual leader and teacher, God's choice, and the peace that follows. And what we're talking about here is God's order. God's order. It doesn't always look correct to us, but it is. I'm going to see if I can illustrate for just a second. You know, I'm well aware that there are women in this room who are highly educated, and I mean theologically. There's not much that I've been teaching from this epistle, but they, that they already know it. I know that. And yet their peace with and respect for God's order is apparent, and it's gracious, and it blesses this class every Sunday when we get input and uh, participation from them. This is the peace that God is talking about, God, peace with God's order. Okay, back to the text. Let's go to verses 14 15. We urge you, brethren, admonished the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. 
See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. So this, now we're moving into the section of the, of the attitude or the testimony toward our brothers and sisters. Verse 14 says to admonish, and that means to warn or to teach. And the unruly here could also be termed the undisciplined. Now, I've already alluded to this fact that there were people, uh, believers in Thessalonica, who had kind of just begun to hang out idly. Uh, and, and they were given the excuse that, well, the Lord is coming soon. And these, uh, I think we can go uh, just for a second to uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And I'll show you what I'm talking about. I'm going to read uh, three verses from here, 6, 10, and 11. Paul again saying, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received from us. 10. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order, if anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work but acting like busybodies. And the excuse being, you know, Jesus is coming, and that is not being alert, and that is not being sober. That is being worldly and carnal and asleep. Uh, basically, uh, in general, unruly is referring to anyone who's not cooperating in the work of God, the squeaky wheel. Let me see another term here, the faint-hearted. Let's see. The faint-hearted, they, they need to be encouraged. Faint-hearted here, I believe, uh, may refer to the weak-spirited, the weak spirit. Some of us are, can be easily discouraged. I'm sure all of us have been discouraged from time to time. And when someone is able to speak an encouraging word into our situation, it's really uplifting. I think that's why God uh, puts us together as a man and wife in so many uh, uh, couples. You know, I'm, uh, Sue does this for me frequently to give me an encouraging word. I, I always see half full, right? or half empty, and she sees half full. So, you know, I need that to counter me. Porter? Well, still around. <laughs> yeah, I know. Now we also have the term weak here. The weak need help. Not weak need, but the weak need. Uh, and I think this refers to the spiritually weak, all right? Uh, and it, it probably refers uh, to their spiritual life. Some, Christ, some Christians are easily, easily led astray. You know, I watch some of these televangelists on TV, and I see the multitudes and thousands of people out in the audience, and I go, surely, surely there are Christians among these people that are just not being led. They're not, they're not getting their truth from the source, the Word of God. And so they're just following, you know, fluff and love and, you know, all this stuff. And uh, that's, that's sad, but those are, the, those are the people that Paul is speaking about that need uh, help. Regarding patience, we all need patience. Uh, in verse 15, there's a great Christian principle here. Basically, it's saying do good 
to them who do evil to us. Okay. Do good to them who do evil to us. This is not natural. This is not the natural man. Uh, Paul's telling the Thessalonian believers, now these guys really were being persecuted and mistreated for their faith, but he's telling them not, they don't, you don't get even, not to get even, not to take things in their own hands. The Christian way is to take evil and respond with good. And when you think about it, isn't this what God has done for us? In exchange for our evil, our sins, he's given us grace and salvation when we trust Jesus as our personal Savior. So it's very applicable. Going back now to verses 16 to 18, this is going to begin to look at our uh, testimony toward God. It says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You know, the world is able to see the outside, but God knows our hearts and our attitudes, and He knows the real character of our spiritual life. In, this, in these uh, three verses right here, 16 to 18, the Thessalonians are given three great exhortations or commands, which when you take them in summation as a unit, they are the will of God for us in Jesus Christ. So let's look at each one of these commands that he gave, starting with rejoice always. And I should give you a warning here because there's a little short rabbit trail that goes with it. (laughs) I have a question. What is the shortest verse in the Bible? John 11.35 is not the shortest verse in the Bible. Uh, It is in English, but not in the Greek. (laughs) In the Greek, 1 Thessalonians 5.16 is the shortest. It is two word. It's two Greek words, and John eleven thirty five is actually three Greek words. So that was time well spent, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> now back to the verse. Think about this for a minute. If all you could say about a Christian was that they rejoiced always, what would that seem to imply about them? What else could you say about them? They're nuts. <laughs> Kevin or Jeff? Perfect. Trusting in the Lord. They are living in the realm of faith and trusting in the Lord. Would you say they're genuinely saved? Sure would have looked like it would. They're nuts. If not, then they are nuts. Right. Or they're on something, you know. The the nitrous is leaking somewhere. because the world may have pleasure, but it knows nothing of rejoicing always, right? And uh, so, and because it's part of the will of God, we, we pretty much think, well, they, they're probably within the will of God if they can rejoice always. You know, rejoicing is actually the opposite of murmuring. Murmuring. Can, there, can you think of a group of people that were noted for their murmuring? I heard a whisper say it. The children of Israel from Egypt to the promised land, right? What did they complain about? Everything. Their food, their drink, their circumstances. But luckily, Christians never do that, so we don't have to worry about 
<laughs> okay, let's move to the next. Praying without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Does this mean to be around the clock on your knees in prayer to the Lord? Did Jesus do that? Does Paul do that? You know, but we do have an example for us. Uh, in, in Daniel, the book of Daniel, you might remember, in Daniel chapter 6, there's a good example. Remember the evil politicians. Now, this was a change of regime. We'd gone from Babylonian to uh, Persian, but they're still in uh, Babylon. These evil politicians, they tricked the Persian leader, Darius, do you remember, into signing a decree uh, against prayer to anyone but him for 30 days. And Daniel gave his response in Daniel chapter 6, verses 10 through 11. I went ahead and printed that too. Daniel, this is Daniel's response to that decree. Daniel 6, verse 10. Now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God, as he had been doing previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God, just as they knew he would. So Daniel was indeed praying without ceasing, wasn't he? Uh, he went right on with his praying at his normal times. Nothing stopped him uh, from being in touch with the Lord. That's one meaning. Another is that we should always be in touch with the Lord. An example, you know, how many times have you been at a, uh, a gathering a party or something and uh, you're with your spouse and you may be in the same room but you're not talking to each other and yet you're still in harmony and you still have an unbroken fellowship with them. And I think that there's, this, there's, an, unwalk, there's an unbroken walk of communion that we can have with God like we, like we do with our spouse. And uh, that, that is what God wants from us, that kind of uh, relationship. Uh, the third section is, uh, in everything, give thanks. In everything, give, give thanks. You notice that he doesn't say, for everything, give thanks, does he? I think, you know, when we look at people's situations, there, I, I look at some and I don't see how they can go on. And there's so much uh, hardship that they're facing. And yet I see, and I have somebody in my mind right now, I just see a smile on their face and, uh, you know, there's no thought of themselves. They are <clears throat> constantly giving thanks in their circumstances. And I think, you know, it's because, listen, ultimately, believers are all victorious in Christ. This time is temporary right now. But eternity lies ahead, and we are all victors in that. And I believe that's what Paul wants us to see as well. So then when we take uh, these three, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks, we have a recipe uh, for a faithful Christian testimony, and it is indeed the will of God for us in Christ Jesus. Any comments on that? Yes.
Yes. It really is. Right. And you can write a book about it and miss, the, miss these three. Right. And you go, well, I don't know whether I should go this way or this way. And do these things. And, and the Lord isn't too concerned about that path or that path. He's concerned about these. You know, we pray before we eat. We just do. When we go out, we do the same thing. Has anyone ever been approached by anyone after you've done that? Or, and You know what I'm talking about? And come up to them and go, wow, you know, we just want to say that really blessed us to see that you bowed your head. You know, it doesn't happen a lot. But man, doesn't that make you feel something when it does? It's really good. Okay. Verses 19 through 22. And we're still talking about our attitude toward God. Let me read these. Uh oh. Or I could stop right here because we've got uh, 1030. Jim, you said you were going to loan me a little bit of your time next week, right? <laughs> I don't want weeks. I don't really have too much. Uh, maybe about 10 minutes. Yeah, well, we'll see. Why don't, why don't we stop here? Uh, we'll pick it up at verse 19 next time. And... Uh, and we'll close. I'm going to ask Porter to pray for us because he was hiding his head. Lord, we just 